You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. If we couldn't get our act together in the last several years, when we've seen some of the biggest breaches of our time, then I'm not quite sure if we're going to be able to get our act together for for federal privacy legislation. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Caveat, the CyberWire's privacy surveillance law and policy podcast. I'm Dave Bittner, and joining me is my co-host, Ben Yellen, from the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security. Hello, Ben. Hello, Dave. On this week's show, Ben looks at potential reactions from the Biden White House to the solar winds hack. I look at growing momentum behind a Google antitrust suit. And later in the show, my conversation with Heather Fetterman from Big ID on the impact of Virginia's new Consumer Data Protection Act. While this show covers legal topics and Ben is a lawyer, the views expressed do not constitute legal advice. For official legal advice on any of the topics we cover, please contact your attorney. With over 8,000 threat hunters analyzing over 65 trillion signals daily, Microsoft works tirelessly with the federal government to keep our nation's data secure. This 30-year-plus partnership is driving mission innovation that is secure by design. Whether optimizing your existing defenses or tackling advanced threats with AI, Microsoft gives you the intelligence and the automation you need to defend at mission scale. Let's work together to stay ahead of emerging threats and secure your mission anywhere. Learn more at aka.ms slash fedcyber. That's aka.ms slash fedcyber. All right, Ben, let's dig into some stories. Why don't you start things off for us this week? My story this week comes from Cyber Scoop, written by Tim Starks, and it's about the Biden administration considering efforts to respond to both the solar winds attack and also the more recent exploitation of Microsoft Exchange servers, mm. uh, which affected millions of Americans, myself included. Oh. So one of the ideas uh, that's been percolating in the administration is to come up with a rating system for U.S. software. And that's very similar to a couple of things. One is a system they have in Singapore that assigns labels or grades to Internet of Things devices based on their security features. So, you know, if you have a IoT refrigerator on a voluntary basis, they can try and get, you know, some sort of what the equivalent to an energy star rating. Mm-hmm. Or maybe a crash test rating for cars, you know. Exactly. This, this car is five-star rated. Yeah, so this is, you know, five-star cybersecurity rated. Hmm. The other similarity is to a system that exists in New York City. And if you've been to New York City, you know, you walk around some neighborhoods, you'll see that there's a little letter embedded in uh, the window of every storefront or every restaurant bar, I should say. And that contains a letter grade, hopefully somewhere between A and C. Uh, And that's uh, a grade on their cleanliness inspection. So somebody from, you know, New York City's inspections goes into the restaurant, sees if there are rats in the kitchen. Right. (laughs) Cracks in the toilet. Anything that might cause some sort of uh, sanitary concern. And this system has actually been pretty successful. I was refreshing myself on articles related to the New York system, and it seems as if there was like a notable decrease in salmonella cases after they instituted this rating system. Oh, interesting. So this offers a lot of promise. There are kind of 
a couple of interesting angles uh, I was thinking about with this story. One is as it relates to liability. This could potentially be a defense for a company that suffers a cyber breach. If you've received some sort of A rating from this rating system, that decreases the chances that you're acting negligently because you're up you know, on the latest standards. You've hmm. encouraged your users to download patches. You know, you're using the most up-to-date technology. Right. And that could cut against your liability in any potential lawsuit. The problem I see with this, and this also came out in the New York City rating system, is corruption. So what happened in New York is well-connected people and well-connected restaurants would make a call to dispute their B ratings, call mm-hmm. their friends at, at City Hall and say, why don't you, you know, shift some things around? Hands, Come hands. on out and have a second look at our restaurant. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> if you want to try some of our, uh, you know, delicious sirloin steak while you're here, <laughs> right, right? Absolutely. Yeah. So that that definitely happened. This was when Mike Bloomberg was mayor, and that was actually a a pretty big, significant public relations hit for the entire system. Hmm. You worry about that a little bit here. Uh, if this rating system becomes the type of thing where Microsoft and Google can get in on the ground floor and try and lobby whomever the authority is. It's probably going to be a board set up by Congress Mm -hmm. uh, to try and improve their ratings. And that could potentially increase their market share. And that might actually be disadvantageous to the smaller companies who don't have that level of influence. Hmm. Uh, But I think it is still nonetheless a very interesting idea. It was actually based on a recommendation from the Solarium Commission to set up a type of board. And we'll have to see if they actually go through with it. What about what about coming at it from the opposite direction? I'm thinking, and this is absurd, but bear with me. The uh, the the liability side. That what if a company has a lousy rating and something bad happens, so they can go back and say, "Well, I mean, come on, we had a D rating and they used us anyway. You can't blame us. It's not like they weren't warned. <laughs> it's all right there. Yeah, I have a feeling that's not going to bode well for their chances in court on liability. Right. One thing we see, uh, weren't you know talking about any type of tort, any type of civil lawsuit, Mm -hmm. the best evidence you can have are are two things. One, if you don't comply with some sort of statute, because that's evidence that you're being negligent if you're breaking the law. Um, The other is if you're not complying with industry custom. If you're in an industry where your competitors are getting A's and B's and you're getting D's and F's, that to me would be pretty compelling evidence that you're acting negligently and exposing your users to potential harm. And so that's not going to bode well for your chances in court. I do like your idea, though, where it's like, look, you've been warned. You know, it's like, (laughs) I don't know about you, Dave, but I've been to a lot of hole-in-the-wall restaurants where, let's just say, (laughs) the sanitation conditions on first glance aren't uh, what we would interpret as, as probably having an A rating. Right. Those places sometimes have great food. Right, exactly. They're legendary in the neighborhood. Like, you cannot miss the, the I don't know, whatever, the, the cheesesteak subs in this hole-in-the-wall place, you know, where the... The, the, the floor is the covered second, in dust. And, yeah. Right, right, exactly. The You know, they're feeding as many cockroaches as, as customers, but... <laughs> One of my favorite restaurants in San Francisco, unfortunately, closed... You know, it was that exact type of place, and it closed down for this exact reason, is, you know, maybe... They were cutting corners with their sanitation practices to mm-hmm. make their food taste better, which it did. <laughs> uh, but to try, yeah. And bring it, yeah, to try and center it back on what we're talking about here, I mean, I don't think it's out of the question that you could kind of see that type of process play out as it comes to cybersecurity. Mm-hmm. I mean, 
probably a lot of the most innovative products online, especially from startups, are going to be less concerned about security features, uh, especially if bringing yourself up to standards might cut against your bottom line. Right. So this maybe provides an extra incentive. Get that that rating. Show your customers that you are responsible, that you uh, you know are interested in protecting the the data of your consumers, mm-hmm. uh, and it might be advantageous to both you as a company and the consumer. Yeah, it's an interesting combination of carrot and stick, isn't it? Because if you do well, you know it's it's a carrot to, in, to incentivize you to do well. But if you don't do well, you have that stick on the other side publicly shaming you for not doing better. That's Scarlet F on your forehead. (laughs) I also think there's a big difference as to whether it's voluntary, like the Singapore IoT system, or if it's mandatory. You know, I I think voluntary could be a good place to start because then you're really only offering the carrots and not the sticks because you're giving people potentially incentive to, to voluntarily get involved with the system. I think where you'd start to see industry opposition is if it became mandatory. Then you really have to worry about the structure of the National Cybersecurity Certification and Labeling Authority, as it would be called under the proposal yeah. of the Solarium Commission. Kind of like a cyber better business bureau, right? <laughs> yeah, ex- exactly. Yeah. Uh, and we also, we know very little about how that commission would be set up. I mean, yeah. I would be worried if it were members of Congress, to be honest, uh, <laughs> or was under the authority of members of Congress. Yeah. Um, but any sort of nonpartisan authority with technical expertise, this could be a promising idea. Hmm. All right. That's interesting. I guess time will tell. We'll see if that gets any traction. Uh, Interesting story. My story this week uh, comes from The Verge, uh, article from Addie Robertson and Russell Brandom, and it's titled, Google Antitrust Suit Takes Aim at Chrome's Privacy Sandbox. The subtitle here is, Google is trying to hide its true intentions behind a pretext of privacy, say prosecutors. Uh, This is an interesting story here, Ben. You've got 15 attorneys general. I always say that wrong. I don't know why I want to say attorney general. You got it right that time. I know. I'm proud of you. (laughs) 15 attorneys general. It doesn't sound right, even though it is right. Correct. They're being led by Texas, and uh, they updated a complaint about Google with some more details on the case that they've made against Google. And basically what this is coming down to is that they think that Google is taking unfair advantage of their market position with the Chrome browser and that some recent privacy updates to Chrome, which includes uh, sort of deprecating the use of um, cookies and some of the the tracking mechanisms that the ad industry uses online, Google in exchange for that is implementing what they're calling a privacy sandbox. Now, as you and I know, putting a name on something doesn't mean that that's what that thing is. Sandbox like, uh, sounds so nice and peaceful. Well, the, thing, the Patriot Act. Yeah. You know, like, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Who doesn't like a sandbox? <laughs> right, exactly. Who doesn't want to be a patriot? Mm-hmm. So what uh, these attorneys general are making the case is that what this privacy sandbox from Google will actually do is strengthen Google's position in the market. And, and I suppose what they're claiming is more and more seeming like a monopoly position in the market where if people want to do targeted advertising, the easiest way to do it is going to be to go through Google, which means Google profits from that. Google is saying, no, 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 no. This is all uh, in an attempt to make it easier for people to protect their privacy 
But obviously, these uh, state attorneys general are skeptical of that, which is why they've got this lawsuit here. What's your take on this, Ben? So first, we should mention that this is just one lawsuit that Google is facing in the antitrust realm. So there's the original Texas complaint. There's a complaint led by Colorado's attorney general joined by other attorneys general, which is about the manipulation of search results in violation of antitrust laws. And then there's a Department of Justice investigation, which we've referenced on this podcast. It seemed to me prior to this that the Texas complaint was perhaps the the least high profile, and this might increase its profile. So hmm. as you said, 15 other states have joined this amended lawsuit, and they're basically accusing Google of walling off an entire portion of the internet that consumers can access through Google Chrome's browser. So, you know, when other browsers block cookies, as other browsers have done, to augment, uh, you know, privacy protections for their consumers... That's not seen as an antitrust practice because the walling off that they're doing is different since they're not controlling the marketplace for for browsers or for search engines. But when we're talking about Google Chrome, they have such a large market share that Google's plan and their, their privacy box technology would require advertisers to use Google as the middleman, and it would make Google's advertising system more attractive. And so this, to me, has merit. If you if Google is going to be the middleman in this scenario, and the point of entry for advertisers is going to try and navigate this privacy box system, then that is an anti-competitive practice. Uh, and I think it was wise of these attorneys general to amend their lawsuit to include this. It's one of those things that Google probably thought they were going to get away with it because people like privacy. And this is something that augments user privacy, whether it's a antitrust concern or not. But some activists out there, including the Electronic Frontier Foundation, have seen through this and they've criticized um, some of what Google's been doing as being self-serving. And so this is the first time that beyond activists, we've seen that position being taken by public officials uh, at the Mm. state level. So it's really interesting. I'm I'm curious to see uh, how this is going to be received in court. Now, from from an antitrust point of view, is this a situation where, for example, you know, if Google spun off the team who makes Chrome, made that an independent company or sold it off or whatever, uh, so that it wasn't shackled to the advertising part of Google, right? Those two aren't communicating with each other, presumably behind the scenes, in the best interest of the larger company. Could that be a solution? Could that be a a remedy that the the government would seek? Potentially. Uh, There are a lot of problems with that because you can manipulate, you know, your corporate structure in such a way where, you know, maybe they're technically not part of the Google family anymore, but the profits filter up to Google. It's one of those things where you'd really have to ensure some type of independence. I think what you're getting at is it's not the action itself that's necessarily the antitrust violation. It's the action combined with the fact that it's Google uh, and mm-hmm. they have this large market share. I don't know if, if that's going to be a proper remedy, and it's certainly not one that Google wants. I mean, it's one of the most profitable parts of their portfolio is having this gargantuan advantage in browsers. Everybody uses Google Chrome. So, you know, I, I don't think that that's something that they're going to give up as willingly. Yeah. And I suppose that we're in this for the long haul, right? None of this is going to get uh, 
solved quick, quickly, right? Never, no. I mean, this is going to take years. Uh, as I said, this is part of several lawsuits against Google. We've now seen you know, this complaint amended. There could be further amendments to the complaint. Google's going to file their answer at some point. We've already gotten a hint as to what they're going to say in their answer, which is that the attorneys general here are mischaracterizing their business and mischaracterizing the privacy sandbox. Uh, and so we'll see exactly what their argument is there. Uh, but then, you know, we could be talking about years of discovery where the court and uh, attorneys for each side try and dig into exactly how Google has tried to illegally take advantage of its position in the marketplace. And yeah, that that takes a really, really long time. And a lot mm. of attorneys are going to get very rich off this lawsuit. <laughs> Unfortunately, I'm not one of them, but but somebody's going to get very most, lucky. Right. Most importantly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. All right. Well, again, that story is uh, from The Verge, and uh, we'll have a link to that in the show notes. It's time to move on to our listener on the line. We got a a nice note from a listener in the UK, uh, someone named Ricky, and uh, they write in and say, in part, uh, I'm an avid listener from the UK and love the podcast. Well, thank you, Ricky. We appreciate that. Part of their message says, uh, Clearview AI may have been able to get away with scraping data and precedents seem to have been set in the US. Now, as per your discussion about Instagram having the right to offer image embedding to other sites and the copyright claim is relinquished once uploaded. How granular could one get with this premise as far as your understanding of their terms are? For example, once the image is uploaded, encoded, and stored in the most accurate technical sense, there will be differences in the ones and zeros when you really get down to it. In addition, any backup of that image when duplicated is by definition not the same image. Are there arguments to be made there, or is this one of those situations where lawyers can dance around that like the ship of Theseus thought experiment? I have to admit, I was not familiar with that <laughs> metaphor. Let's dig into that. So before I ask you for a actual informed legal opinion on mm-hmm. this, uh, I will um, pontificate from my position of ignorance. Always a good idea. It's what I do best. Mm-hmm. So to me, uh, what we're getting at here is kind of like, um, let's say you make a painting, right? A beautiful painting and... You have copyright of that painting, and I take a picture of that painting. I'm not allowed to go around and sell my pictures of your painting uh, and say, well, this isn't the original painting. This is just pictures of the painting. This is different from that. There's no actual, there's no paint in my paint, in my photos of this painting. I'm using, I'm printing this on my inkjet printer, and so it's a totally different thing. Well, if it's the same image, I would suspect if I went in front of a judge, they would say, yeah, it's the same image. Knock it off, right? Um, yes. Is, yes, is that would. what we're getting here? <laughs> yeah, what? it's really a spectrum. It's not a, a hard and fast rule. You are yeah. more likely to survive a copyright claim if there's some sort of transformative use involved. So mm-hmm. if you're using that picture and altering it in a way that it changes its creative meaning, or potentially as like a satire or some sort of public commentary, then, you know, you might be exempt from a copyright claim under fair use. If there are minor changes in the zeros and ones, that's not going to vitiate the, the copyright claim. So even if the image is minimally altered, you know, that's all ultimately up for a judge and a jury to decide. Right. But it's highly unlikely that the copyright claim will, will be vitiated in that circumstance. Yeah, this also reminds me of, you know, some of the arguments back in the days, uh, the early days when people were talking about, 
software piracy and and music piracy where you know that that difference between walking into a brick and mortar store and walking out with a, a record album without paying for it versus making a copy a digital copy of a digital file you know is something actually lost in other words rather than the physical good being lost the potential revenue has been lost yeah and what's the difference there yeah, I mean, ultimately, after a series of lawsuits and protestations by some of our favorite musicians, it turned out that that, that was a copyright claim. There's a reason we don't use Napster and LimeWire anymore, right. um, because you know that music in and of itself has value even in the absence of something physical. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think that's really the, the appropriate analogy here. All right. Well, we thank our listener for sending in that uh, good question. Uh, We would love to hear from you. Our phone-in number is 410-618-3720. You can also send us an email. It's caveat at thecyberwire.com. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Ben, I recently had the pleasure of speaking with Heather Fetterman. She's from a company called Big ID. And our discussion centered on the impacts of Virginia's new Consumer Data Protection Act. Here's my conversation with Heather Fetterman. The Commonwealth has basically taken bits of GDPR and CCPA, the California privacy law, and created its own version of comprehensive consumer privacy legislation. So some of the similarities you might see here are certain data subject rights or consumer rights. There's also now requirements to do risk assessments for any highly sensitive data processing activities. The attorney general has the ability to enforce the law. And there's also a category for sensitive data as well and and specific rights that have to be uh, acted out for that as well. Can you give us an idea of what this means to your average uh, Virginia resident here? How, How could this affect them? The good news is that any Virginia resident that wishes to exercise their consumer rights with an organization that does business with Virginians, not necessarily in the state of Virginia, but it meets a certain threshold. So I believe it's around 100,000, but uh, I I can confirm that offline. Essentially, they can go to their website, they can exercise their rights and basically say, I want to know what data you have about me. I want the ability to download that data. I want the ability for you to delete that data. Now, the one thing to keep in mind with this is that there are a number of exceptions. So any businesses that are considered a financial institution, they're essentially exempt. 
If they're a healthcare institution, they are exempt. There are several other exemptions as well. So there are rights for Virginians, but it's somewhat limited in scope as to what those businesses are. Now, what about for a you know a major platform, say like like Facebook, who's sort of uh, you know famous or or uh, dare I say notorious for vacuuming up all sorts of information about folks? Is this sort of thing going to affect them? Yes, Facebook would fall squarely within the sort of company that this would affect. And how would it affect them? What would what sort of things would they have to accommodate? Essentially, what would be somewhat different is they would have to say to any Virginia consumer that wants to exercise their right that they would be able to exercise their right. So what they're doing in California would basically become an extension of what they're doing in Virginia. It's interesting to me that this includes what's referred to as data minimization. Am I correct in my understanding that the organizations, it's okay for them to to collect the data that they need, but really no more than that? Yes, data minimization, it's been one of the longstanding privacy principles. And there's a set of privacy principles that have been around since the early 1980s. And the idea with data minimization is that you collect the minimum amount of data that you need for a given processing activity. On the flip side of that is once you're done with that data, then you can delete it, you can archive it. If there's any duplicate data, then you can get rid of that duplicative data. So how would this uh, affect, say, you know, we hear about these apps, for example, like, you know, weather apps that are gathering up our location data that, uh, you know, in exchange for getting um, information about the weather, our location data gets collected and then gets sold off. Would this fall under something like this, that my, my location doesn't, you know, have anything to do with my desire to see what the weather is going to be like? Well, It depends because in the case of a weather app, location typically would be necessary. If I'm in California, then the weather in New York, while might be interesting, it's not really going to be relevant to me if I'm waking up in Los Angeles one morning. Does the weather app need to know my advertising identifier? Do they need to know all of my contacts? In in that sense, it, it becomes a bit more of a slippery slope. And I would say no. So for a weather application makes total sense to me. But once we start going into other types of information, then it becomes a bit more unclear. So it's up to the developers of these applications, as well as their, their businesses and their teams to say, what do we need to create a functional product or service that's actually going to be in the best interest of our users? Now, does in general, does this still um, make these sorts of things opt out? In other words, the, the providers don't have to ask you if you want to opt in. They, they merely have to give you the option for opting out. Is that, is that accurate? It, it's another one of those, it depends. It gets a little messy depending on where in the world you are, what's your residency, and what type of data you're dealing with. I think a general rule of thumb is that there's certain sort of data types in which it becomes more opt out. So a a clear example might be when you unsubscribe from marketing emails, that's an opt out. Opting in is when, let's say you're downloading a mobile app and they ask you, can this app collect your location? Can they collect your contacts? That's an opt in. So those are different types of examples of where it's consent basically becomes a sliding scale. 
within these mm-hmm. various regulations, though, there are nuances or differences between when it needs to be opt out versus opt in. So the general data protection regulation, GDPR, it's considered to be more of an opt in regime for, for data collection as one of the legal bases for processing data. However, with uh, the California's uh, CCPA, that's opting out. So opting out of sharing information, opting out of the sell of information, uh, choosing to say in the new version of coming out in California, I want to limit the disclosure of this information, of, of sensitive data. And, and Virginia is somewhat similar in that it's also opt out of wanting to opt out of the sale or sharing of that sort of information. Are there any significant ways that Virginia's law is different from, say, California's? Are are there any ways that they've taken their own path here? In the United States, we have a very sector-specific approach to privacy regulation. That's how it's been for, let's say, the last few decades. There Mm -hmm. are specific laws around financial data. Um, There's specific laws around healthcare data. And, and, and children's data and et cetera. California basically said, okay, so if you are going to be dealing with financial data that's going to fall under this financial law, then this financial data is not going to be regulated by this privacy law. However, anything that falls outside the scope of financial data for purposes under this law, we have jurisdiction to, to regulate this. You're, you're on the hook mm-hmm. for this law. Virginia took a different approach and they basically said, well, any financial organization that is subject to this law, that they don't, they basically are out of scope for this law. So they don't, they don't have to worry. I don't know if the right way is to say they don't have to worry about it because as a financial institution, I would still be wondering what's going to be coming down the pipeline from other state regulations. Mm-hmm. But that that's one key difference that I've actually really seen and, and was frankly surprised by as well. Now, this made its way through Virginia's House and Senate pretty quickly. Was there broad bipartisan support for it? Yes. I, I mean, frankly, I was surprised by the the speed at which this got through, considering uh, privacy practitioners have had their eyes on Washington for, for years now of seeing if something would pass there. And here, this, as you said, it went through within three weeks. There was pretty much bipartisan support. It seemed that the big sticking points uh, that typically hold up privacy laws were already squared away. And, and one mm-hmm. of those is typically around the a private right of action. So the ability for an individual to sue, and that is not included in this, in this law. It would just be the attorney mm-hmm. general enforcing this, which um, just to add to your earlier question about differences the California one does have the right for individuals to sue if there is a a data breach. I see. As we record this, is this uh, still on the governor's desk to be signed? Correct. Uh, I believe it fell on the governor's desk last Friday and the governor has seven days for official signature. But I I would be very, very surprised if the governor did not sign this considering uh, the broad support, the broad bipartisan support here. And it, generally looks good for the state of Virginia. Where do you suppose we're headed with this? I mean, do you think we're going to continue to see the state-by-state approach to this, or could we eventually see something happen at the federal level? I'm going with the former. We're going to see more state-by-state activity 
there's been a number of states that have been looking at their own privacy laws. Florida's governor has come out with an announcement. New York has come out with an announcement. Minnesota, Oklahoma, North Dakota. There's a bunch of states that are having active discussions. It just Virginia was the first one to get their act together. In terms of federal, I'm somewhat skeptical that we're ever going to get there. If it's going to happen, it could potentially happen the next few years. But even even then, I look at what our landscape is when it comes to security. And we have now 50 different state data breach notification laws. And if we couldn't get our act together in the last several years, when we've seen some of the biggest breaches of our time, then I, I'm not quite sure if we're going to be able to get our act together for, for federal privacy legislation. Yeah, that's a really interesting insight. When does this go into effect? When do Virginians get to enjoy the benefits of this law? It would be January 1st, 2023, which is the same day that the new version of California's law, the California Privacy Rights Act, also goes into effect. So there's a a bit of a ramp-up period here where I suppose organizations have time to plan and put things in place? Correct. And, and And that's a good thing, ultimately, for, for two reasons. One, it's giving, if the federal lawmakers really want to do something, I mean, it's giving them the note, the, the signal that, you know, they've got two years to basically get their act together. And also for any organizations in America that have taken a California only approach, this might be a signal for them to take a bit of a wider approach to any consumers that want to exercise their rights because this is going to only continue to be a trend of of allowing consumer rights to to be part of a state regulation. And it's going to look somewhat kludgy in your privacy statement if you're saying only Virginians, only Californians. So I'm I'm really hoping that that at least is uh, something that comes out of this. And, And what sort of advice are you giving folks who are on the other side of this, who are providing these online services and are going to have to comply with this law? To me, it's about taking a practical approach when it comes to managing these various regulations, to managing your data rights. So it really starts with knowing the data, having a clear sense of where your data is, whose data it is. So a a clear data mapping strategy program in place. And, And from there, I always like to look at what the similarities are between these various regulations and, and see, okay, so I know that California, Virginia, GDPR, these are all the similar requirements. So I can focus on these and then start to go into what the nuances might be. So really starting from the data layer, then going into what are the similarities. And then finally, we can drill into the details. The one thing that I mean, I think will be interesting for state regulation will be this question around private right of action, because Mm -hmm. that's really going to be the sticking point as to whether these state laws will get passed. And to me, that's why the Virginia law did get passed. Well, I mean, it's not officially passed, but that it has gone through so smoothly. And and I'll be curious to see if that's going to be the case with other state laws. So I'll, I'll be very curious to watch out for that private right of action wrong going into the next year. But this is just the first of an onslaught of regulation we're going to be seeing, not the last. All right, Ben, what do you think? I mean, first of all, it's exciting. I, I know we talked about this a few weeks ago, but really we have our second in the in the nation law of this type after California's law. 
Um, I think the Virginia law, as Heather said, takes aspects of both the CCPA and the GDPR. And, you know, it's just going to be really exciting and interesting to see how this plays out in the next couple of years before this law and the revised version of the CCPA go into effect in 2023. I also kind of glommed on to what she said at the end, where so much of what I look at in these laws is that private right of action, because that's really Mm -hmm. what gives the uh, consumers a lot of power. And, you know, without that, I think there's going to be more industry support for this legislation, for this type of legislation, but the legislation isn't going to be as robust. So I think that's a really interesting dividing line. And we're going to start to see more of these laws. It's not going to stop at California and Virginia. So you not only are going to have to deal with compliance issues with multiple states, but you're going to have to think about how they all fit together and whether this could be the impetus for some sort of federal data privacy law. So I thought it was a really interesting interview. Yeah, it's just a quick note too. As some of our listeners have pointed out, that it's not—it's not as if only California and uh, and Virginia have these laws either. In fact, California gets all the uh, the attention, but there are some other states that have implemented privacy laws. I believe even ahead of California. Yeah, California's is the most comprehensive and the most right. like GDPR, which is why people reference it. But you know, we've talked about other states where they have at least segments of similar uh, data privacy legislation, Illinois, for example, being one of them. So yeah, it's, yeah, it is not just these two states. I think what's distinguishing about California now, Virginia, is the comprehensive nature of the legislation. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, again, our thanks to Heather Fetterman from Big ID for joining us. We do appreciate her taking the time. And now a word from our sponsor, Netscope. Netscope is a worldwide leader in SASE and Zero Trust. Its unified platform, Netscope One, provides optimized access and Zero Trust security for people, devices, and data anywhere they go, helping customers reduce risk, accelerate performance, and get unrivaled visibility into any cloud, web, and private application activity. To learn more about how Netscope helps customers be ready for anything on their SASE journey, visit N-E-T-S-K-O-P-E dot com. That is our show. We want to thank all of you for listening. The Caveat Podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our senior producer is Jennifer Iben. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Ben Yellen. Thanks for listening. <laughs>